0: But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more that now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, let us pray. God, we thank you for your mercy given to us in Jesus, and we pray that this morning we would uh, we would feel it in our hearts. And that it would make us new. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday, I attended a wedding at a Greek Orthodox church. And uh, I've been to a worship service at a Greek Orthodox church, but I've never been to a wedding at a Greek Orthodox church. And uh, let me just say it was a bit overwhelming. Uh, You walk into the sanctuary and immediately you're just struck by the imagery everywhere. Uh, There are panels of iconography and pictures and colors just overwhelming you from the moment you step in there. There's this huge dome uh, that you're constantly looking up at. And then there's the sounds coming at you. Unfamiliar liturgy and chanting and song. And you're trying to follow along. uh, But so much is coming at you all at once. It's hard to take it in. And you don't exactly know Where to find your focus. And I would say that some of you feel that way when we're reading the book of Romans. There are words upon words upon words coming at you, and you're struggling to take it all in, and you're trying to figure out how to find your focus. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is no different. It's easy to get lost in all the words. Rolling off of Paul's tongues, you have his tongue. You have words like justification and peace and grace and hope and love and wrath and reconciliation. And you can be listening to this and going, what what am I supposed to focus in on here? How do I find my focus? And what I want you to notice is something that's repeated three times in this passage that will help you get a handle on all of it and not get lost in the details. Because three times Paul says the words, we rejoice. Verse 2, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. In verse 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is talking about joy in this passage. And that is something that every one of us needs in our lives. And it's something that we need to get clear on because the truth is the church is full of what we might call cranky Christians. Do you know what I'm talking about? People who are sour and dour all the time, uh, constantly complaining, never satisfied, always warning about what's out there coming to get you. And uh, if, you, if, if, you, if you're around cranky Christians, or if you yourself are a cranky Christian, it's difficult to find the joy in the midst of all the crankiness. But you know, there's an opposite error that's, that's just as problematic, and it's what we might call kooky Christians. You know what I'm talking about? They're the people who, they're never without a pious phrase for any sorrow that they meet. They can just paper it right over it. They can just kind of smother down uh, people's cries and tears with some uh, sort of wine or pious drivel. Uh, They're people who seem really out of touch with reality. Uh, They seem kind of nutty and weird, honestly. And uh, let's just be honest. Sometimes we are that. We're very kooky. And joy that Paul is talking about this morning is not something... That ignores the sufferings, the real sufferings of the world. It's something that faces them square on. But it's not crankiness because it's something that actually holds up in the worst that life has to throw at us. And what I want to do uh, quickly this morning is note three things about the joy that Paul is talking about. And those three things are this joy is possible. Joy is durable. And lastly, joy is both experiential and logical. Right? It's it's possible, it's durable, and it's both experiential and logical. And what we're talking about specifically is Christian joy. So let's start with that first point, that that joy is actually possible. And I want you to notice this in verse 3, that Paul writes, We rejoice in hope Of the glory of God. And what he's talking about here is a kind of joy that's not rooted in our circumstances, but it is rooted in the hope that we have in the gospel. And everything he says before that line is actually leading up to and feeding in to this great hope that we have. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because the truth is, every single one of us is chasing happiness. Right. You, you can go look at the literature. Uh, there's the happiness studies out there. And uh, we're on this long, relentless endeavor to find our happiness. I once heard a story that the Dalai Lama uh, came to visit. Uh, the United States, and uh, he went to a ski resort in Colorado. And, uh, you know, he was looking around saying, we've got some great mountains in Tibet, you know, how do we do this in Tibet? How do we make uh, resorts like you have in Colorado? And apparently uh, a news... A news person was uh, following the Dalai Lama around, was trying to, uh, you know, figure out like what he was about, take notes on what was happening. And they ended up at this diner where the Dalai Lama was eating and they're having all this chit chat, you know, talking kind of at a 10,000 foot level. And uh, one of the servers at that diner actually came, stepped away from her work, sat down and said, can I ask you a question? And the Dalai Lama said, Sure and she said what is life all about and he said life is about happiness and she kind of looked at him and then he said what life is all about is not the hard question it's what makes happiness that is hard and the cook or the the server was satisfied and got up and walked away and it was very interesting isn't it because Happiness is something that we just sort of take for granted. It's what we want, but what makes a happy life? What is it? Where is it that we find our happiness? And here's the thing. I, I don't, I don't like putting it in terms of happiness because happiness is something that we know is deeply tied to our circumstances and our circumstances are always going up and down, changing, and are so often outside of our control. And what Paul is talking about is not happiness as some kind of peaceful, easy feeling, as the eagle's saying, but rather a joy that actually endures no matter what life throws at you. But hold on to that for a second. Because the joy... That he's talking about here, the joy that is a possibility for Christians is a joy that is rooted in the hope we have in the gospel. And I want you to notice how he leads up to this uh, in verses one and two. What has Paul been talking about for four chapters? He's been talking about the darkness of the human condition and what God has done about it in Jesus Christ. He says, we were under wrath, but now through Jesus Christ, we have been justified. We have been declared righteous in his sight. We have been made right with him. And he begins by saying, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, guess what? We have Peace with God. And that's not, it's not peace of God like a subjective feeling. It means the enmity is over. The hostility is gone forever. Later he'll use the word reconciled. And this is all important. God never justifies someone without also reconciling them. He doesn't just declare us righteous. Right in a court of law, he actually brings us in to fellowship and friendship with him. There is peace between us. And not only that, but Paul says through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now. That, that language might be a little difficult to get your head around, especially if you're new to the Christian faith. You're like, what is this talking about? And uh, many scholars have pointed out that this word access, you know, think about uh, the access card that hangs around your neck at some of your workplaces, and it gives you entrance uh, into certain parts of the building or maybe certain buildings themselves. And uh, that's, that's a great image. It's like you have VIP status. Uh, but... What Paul means here is introduction. Like you have been brought in to a royal family. You've been introduced by someone who has the power to do so. And now you live and dwell in a different kind of space. You know, we talk about spaces a lot in our culture. We talk about technological space. Uh, we talk about educational space. We talk about our workspace, and there's I don't know, you go look online, and there's all different uh, you know kinds of images around different ways to set up your workspace, and it's all about getting the environment just right that will be best for you or for your workers. And this is what the Apostle Paul is writing. If you are united to Christ by faith, not only are you justified in God's sight, not only is the enmity ended between you, but you live and dwell in a space of grace. Do you know how important that is for your Christian life? Because some of you struggle deeply with God is disappointed in me. And that's the space that you inhabit for most of your life. Because the truth is, we know we still carry a whole lot of sin around with us. But God has put it in a new environment. Where his grace and his mercy is there every day, all day long. We have access, we have introduction into this space called grace. And it's where we stand. It's where we sit. It's where we lie down. It's where we walk around grace all around us. Everywhere in Christ Jesus. And then Paul winds up to say, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What what is he talking about here? The glory of God is God's worthiness, his weightiness, his substance. And in the Old Testament, the glory of God was talked about by the prophets as when it is fully manifested, it will mean healing. Healing. To all the world in the universe. I mean the renewal of all creation. Paul will talk about it like that in chapter 8 verse 21. It will also mean that we will be clothed with it. We will be glorified by the presence of God's glory. And Paul is saying, do you see the chain reaction that is set off by being united to Jesus? Jesus. You are declared righteous. The hostility is over. You live and move in the space of grace. And your destiny, your future, is to be glorified by the glory of God. To be made entirely new by his saving and loving presence. That is... The great hope. And by the way, it's not a hope so hope. It's not the kind of hope that says, uh, I hope I get into Stanford business school or I hope my back pain goes away or I hope I get married or I hope I have kids or I hope this cancer goes away. This is a hope that actually became flesh. And lived and died for us. And its name is Jesus. You see. Some of us struggle with God being disappointed in us all the time. That's how we feel in the Christian life. Others of us feel like God is distant. He's removed. He's not dialed in to what's going on with me. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you do not understand the goodness of the gospel If you don't understand that hope has come near, hope has come for you, hope has entered into this world in order to save and guarantee the renewal of all things and the renewal of you and me. God delights in his children. And you can know that. Because it is the hope that's wrapped up in the gospel. And that means joy is possible. Joy is real. Joy is available for you in Christ Jesus. And Paul is writing all these things so he can wind up and say, we rejoice in this. We rejoice in the great hope we've been given in the gospel of God. And it is about the glory of God making all things new. Now, some of you might be saying like, okay, uh, make this touch down in some other parts of my life. And that's why the second point is so important, what Paul says next. And this is what you need to see. Joy is not only possible, it is durable. Because where Paul goes right after verse 2 is verse 3. And we rejoice in our sufferings. The kind of joy Paul's talking about is something that can endure even through sorrow. And not only endure, as he'll go on to say, but grow. Suffering can actually deepen and intensify your joy. Because it'll deepen and intensify your holding on to the hope that is in the gospel. And it's so important that we get our minds around this. Okay, So we we, we need to do a couple of things first. We need to talk a little bit about what Paul's not saying. What What he's not saying is this. He's not saying we rejoice despite our sufferings. There's a certain sense in which that is true. But that could easily be mistaken for stoicism. And that's somehow... You know, some people tend to think that's what Christianity is. That it's like being detached. This is where we get the kooky Christian thing. Don't, don't let it get to you. Don't let it touch you. Don't, don't care so much, right? You're untouchable. And you think that's what Paul is talking about here. But that's, that's not what he's talking about. You know what that is? That's living in denial. And living in denial will make you... Either an out-of-touch person or a hard and harsh person. Not a soft one. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying we rejoice despite our sufferings. Nor is he saying we rejoice for our sufferings. It's not like, yay, I'm suffering. Isn't this great? If the first error is stoicism, this error is masochism. And by the way, it comes in very subtle and seductive versions. As one person put it, uh, it can go like this. My suffering makes me special. My suffering makes me unique. I've got problems, therefore I'm deep and complicated. You get the drifts? You know what we're talking about? Some of us, we always feel the deep need to play the martyr. It's our identity and security. And if we don't have enough sorrow in our life at the moment, we'll manufacture some. So that we can signal to people like, look at me, I'm important. I matter, right? I'm a sufferer. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's neither saying we rejoice despite our sufferings nor rejoice for our sufferings. What he is saying is we rejoice in our sufferings. In the midst of them. We are deeply in touch with the sorrow and sufferings of our life and of all of life. Because we have a hope big enough to face them without being consumed by them. One New Testament scholar, Michael Kruger said, nothing tests the validity of a worldview like tragedy and suffering. If all your joy dissipates when you're suffering, it's a warning light on your dashboard saying, check engine. Your view of the nature of life and of reality is specious if it can't handle suffering. You know what specious means? It means it might on the surface look plausible, but it's actually wrong. It's inadequate. Because if you, if when you suffer, you're completely shattered, like life is ruined, then your view of life must be very specious. It can't hold up to what life throws at you. But Paul is saying this, the gospel enables you to rejoice right in the midst of our sufferings. Because that's a hope big enough to endure. This joy is durable. And not only that, Paul says more. Look at verse 3. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces what? Hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Uh, these words are, I mean, we, could, we could do a whole sermon series on that. But endurance is, it, it, it's like you, you, you hang in there, right? You you keep on. You have that virtue being born into your soul by the pressure, by the adversity, by the hardship. And that produces character. What is character? It's like testedness. You've go, you're gone through it and it's held up. And that actually produces more and more hope in your great hope. And this isn't a hope so hope, like we've said. This is a hope that will not disappoint, will not let you down, will not put you to shame because God's not going to let you down. And this is the point that Paul is making. God can do things in and through our suffering that we could never manufacture and orchestrate by ourselves. Because as we all know, suffering doesn't abide by our calendars and agendas. You know that, right? You can't say, I'm going to plan to suffer this much so I can get that particular result. It's not like lifting weights or dieting or training for a marathon. The real sufferings of life don't work like that. They're chaotic. They spill over your boundaries and they often surprise you. And yet... If you're anchored in your justification, in the peace that you have with God, in the grace that is yours in the gospel, in the great 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 mercy and love he's given you, it can't take away your hope. But you know what it can do? It can intensify it. Suffering lays us bare. It pulls our lives apart in ways that we actually take a good look on what we're building our identity on. On what we're we're hoping in for our security. And what we think makes us valuable or significant. Like, it's like you're on the operating table and you're opened up, right? And we get to see everything that's inside. It's what suffering does. And Paul says we can rejoice in the midst of it. Because we know God is up to something for our good right there. You've heard this illustration before, I'm sure. If you've you know been to church ten times. And that is you can look at your troubles like a furnace. Right? Fire can purify metal. And this is how this image is worked out throughout the New Testament. One place the Apostle Peter says, your faith, more precious than gold, is being refined right? by the fire of trial and suffering. And you think about that image, when you put gold into a furnace, everything but gold can't handle the heat. Things that used to be able to cling together under normal conditions can no longer stick together. They melt away. They're called dross. And they get burned off. And what Paul is saying is you can have joy that endures. Because you can know that in the midst of this heartache and this sorrow, you don't have to deny it. You don't have to detach from it. You don't have to get all kooky. You can know God is up to something. He's refining and focusing my faith. He's drawing me to hope, into a hope big enough to be an answer to the sorrows and the sins and the hardship of life. Right? Joy is possible and joy is durable. Christian joy is. But here's the last thing, and I want you to really dial in this. Joy is both experiential and logical. Because it's rooted in the love of God. You notice that Paul pivots towards the latter part of this passage to talking about the love of God. And there's two particular verses that I want to focus in on. The love of God, verse 5, the end of it, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And you know what Paul is doing? He's saying there is both an internal and an external witness to the love of God for us. Internally, he pours out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's verse 5. Externally, he has put his love on display in the death of Christ. And by the way, I wasn't sure I was going to say that, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. The cross is God's PDA, his public display of affection for his people, internal and external. We need both and both will add up to what Paul will later say is that nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I want you to look at these, these two things, the experiential and the logical. It is experiential. There are times in our lives when, when we feel the love of God in our hearts. And by the way, it's often when we're in the midst of suffering that we actually experience his nearness, his care for us, right? his, his attentiveness to the details of our life. And we become refreshingly and deeply aware that God loves us, even right in the middle of that. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying. You ever had an experience like that? It's often not when, when things are going super well. This is how we think it goes. For like, The blessings are coming. Oh, I feel so loved by God. But more often than not, it's when life is falling apart. And we're filleted open on the operating table. That this surprising experience of God's love happens to us. And Paul is saying, that's the Holy Spirit up to good in our lives. Letting us know that God loves us deeply. Now, some of you might say, okay, so uh, if that's the experiential thing, what, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to say, All right, God, um, make me feel love. I'm waiting. And that's a very abstract way of approaching this. And it's not exactly how it happens, because if you look at what Paul goes on to say, he says this is happening as you look at something else. And that is what Jesus has done. And let me put this somewhat counterintuitively. And this is the other side of this. The joy that we have in the love of God is logical. It has a rational basis. It it has great reasons. And I want you to pay attention to the while stills and the much mores of this passage. The while stills, while we were still weak, verse 6, while we were still sinners, verse 8, while we were enemies, verse 10. Christ died for the ungodly, verse 6. Christ died for us, verse 8. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, verse 10. Do you know what Paul's doing? He's rubbing our hearts and noses in the logic of God's love. He's saying, do you see? It was while still that God did this for you. And then look at the much more. We have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 9. Or having been reconciled much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Verse 10. Do do you know what Paul is trying to do for us here? He's saying when you are drowning in sorrow or when you are feeling God is distant or disappointed in you, think it out. Argue with yourself. Push back against your feelings. Tell yourself the truth. Do you really think... That after doing all of this for you, God's going to give up on you now. See, that's the logic of it. And that's part of the goodness of the gospel. And that is part of the the beauty of this hope that we have. And you notice Paul is is like doing linguistic flips here. uh, Trying to get across something that we have to get our minds and hearts around. Is that when you look at the gift that we have in the gospel, you have to realize... The more it costs and the less it is deserved, the greater the love is seen to be. The more it costs, the less it is deserved, the greater the love is seen to be. How much did it cost? It cost the Son of God his life to save us. How little was it deserved? We were weak and helpless and powerless, we were sinners, we were enemies. Yet Christ died for us. Add it up. What does that mean? This is the greatness of God's love put on display before your face. And the Holy Spirit is going to take that and at times drill it into your heart. And guess what? It's often going to happen in the midst of your suffering. I came across an article this week um, that was about a man by the name of James Van Tholen. And James Van Tholen was a pastor of a Christian reformed church in Rochester, New York in the nineties. And uh, James Van Van Tholen had preached on grace uh, his whole ministry career, which wasn't that long uh, at the time um, that this article was talking about. He was 31 years old and he found out he had cancer. And the cancer had metastasized everywhere. And so he had to drop out of ministry for a while. And on his first Sunday back, uh, he preached on Romans 5. And he stood up before uh, his congregation and told them how scared he was. He said, I've preached grace all my life. But when I realized I was going to die, it just began to unravel me. And I began to ask, how am I going to explain myself to God? But that began a process for James Van Tholen of looking at where is his hope? How can he experience joy in the midst of this kind of sorrow? And this is how he ended his sermon. What we must talk about here is not me, I cannot be our focus. Because the center of my story, our story, is that the grace of Jesus Christ carries us beyond every cancer, every divorce, every sin, every trouble that comes to us. The Christian gospel is the story of Jesus. And that's the story I'm called to tell. I'm dying. Maybe it will last or take longer instead of shorter. Maybe I'll preach for several months and maybe for a bit more. But I am dying. I know it and I hate it and I'm still frightened by it. But there is hope, unwavering hope. I have hope not in something I've done, some purity that I've achieved or maintained, or some sermon I've written. I hope in God, the God who reaches out for an enemy, saves a sinner, dies for the weak. That's the gospel, and I can stake my life on it. I must, and so must you. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, that there is a hope for us in the gospel that is big enough. It is big enough for whatever we face. uh, No matter what sorrow, um, no matter what sickness, no matter what sin, no matter what amount of experience of shame. uh, It's all there for us. Justification in your sight, peace with you. uh, The space of grace to live and move and have our our being in, in the hope of the glory of God. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us rediscover or discover for the first time the joy that is possible, the joy that is durable, the joy that is both experiential and logical, and that you, by your Holy Spirit, would drive home into our hearts your great love for us, and you would hasten the day in which your glory is made manifest and all creation. And all of us who trust in you are renewed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.